In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, Zoe has a fascinating and really great conversation with Cornelia Levy-Bencheton and Mike Barlow, the authors of the book Smart Cities, Smart Futures, Showcasing Tomorrow. Cornelia and Mike tell us about their different backgrounds and how they became so passionate about the smart city and smart community space. They share with us their desire to educate and inspire people about these concepts so that we can collectively be more engaged citizens, have a more effective and empowered democracy, and solve problems both big and small in our communities, cities, countries, and across the world. Cornelia and Mike tell us how they see the US embracing smart concepts, and they share some examples of smart concepts being used in real places. They tell us why being engaged citizens is so important, and also what they see as the six facets of a smart city. Now, this was actually a longer interview than usual, so we've split the conversation into two parts. You will hear part one today, and part two is coming soon to a podcatcher near you, so stay tuned for that. And as always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The smart community podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Mike and Cornelia. How are you both today? Hi, Zoe. Fabulous. Great to be with you today. Cornelia here. And here's Mike. We are wonderful. Thank you. We're awaiting the snowfall in Connecticut. But aside from that, all is well. Nice. Let's jump straight in. And can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? Maybe, Cornelia, you want to share first? Sure. Well, I'm passionate about marketing. I love marketing because it makes things happen. It makes progress. It's a discipline that carries people forward and earns money for people. So I'm a full stack marketer with experience that ranges from marketing science, decision support, thought leadership in content, and technology innovation. And I've written a bunch of books on technology for O'Reilly Media, and most recently with my esteemed co-author on the line here, Mike Barlow. Our book is Smart Cities, Smart Future, Showcasing Tomorrow. And I'm passionate about smart cities and technology. Awesome. Mike, how about you? I am a uh, recovering newspaper journalist, and um, journalists are always looking for new angles on old stories. And cities have been around for thousands of years, but suddenly when we were in Barcelona a couple of years ago, we found a new angle and we discovered the smart city. And it just really, really struck our interest. And we said, wow, we need to write about this. And as writers, you know, we're, as again, we're just always looking for wonderful topics that we can dive into. And this turned out to be much more interesting than we thought. We thought originally that we'd start off by writing a book about technology, but it turned out to be a book about people and about a social movement. So it, it turned out to be much more exciting and much more interesting than we could have hoped for. It was all good. Yes, that's actually, it's a, it was quite a journey because it started actually, for me anyway, with a strong interest in the Internet of Things and in sensors. And I was fascinated by sensors, data collection, and creating a data infrastructure, for example, in cities, which could be the basis for many different types of technology and making progress and making things better. So initially, I thought we were going to be writing a book about technology, just as Mike said, but it turned out that it is very, very people-driven, 
very socially oriented. And the connection between citizens, residents, and visitors of cities and their government. It turned out that the government piece was all new to me. And uh, I am very much uh, filled with new respect and awe for local governments and their agencies and how they work. I'm so happy you said that because uh, that was part of our discovery process. And again, when you embark on a journalistic endeavor like this, and, and basically the, the book, any kind of nonfiction is, to me, is uh, journalistic research. And uh, we discovered that instead of writing about technology infrastructure, we write about that, but we also wrote about social infrastructure. So as Cornelia indicated, what we found was to make a smart city work, you need smart government, smart politics, and smart citizens. Not necessarily not order. So it could be smart citizens, smart government, and smart politics. But those three things need to be there. And as we'll, when we talk a little later about the Amazon debacle, we can talk about how those things, the absence of those is what uh, led to the, uh, the fiasco and the decision of Amazon to pull out of Queens, which is a borough in New York City. We'll talk about that later. But thank you. I think we've answered this already, but was there anything specifically that sparked your interest in the smart cities or the term I'm using is smart communities space? You know, I grew up in a city. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, and, uh, and I loved it. I just loved being a kid in a city. There's so much wonderful stuff in cities. And then I noticed that in the 70s and the 80s and, and the 90s, there was all of a sudden everybody started, you know, bad-mouthing and trash-talking cities. And it really upset me, but it wasn't until we were in Barcelona a few years ago where this idea of the smart cities was introduced to us that I said, yeah, this is a way to write about how wonderful cities are, and this is a lever to get people interested. This is an angle. Again, as a journalist, you're always looking for an angle, a fresh angle on an old story, and I said, this is the angle to remind people how wonderful cities are, how great they are, and how important they are to human culture. You know, they really are uh, just an amazingly powerful and wonderful part of human culture. And so the Smart Cities, Smart Communities movement is redemptive and it's visionary and it's, it's all leading to a much brighter future in which we solve problems on a local level rather than, you know, kind of relegating them or delegating them to uh, the higher ups and federal government, stuff like that. Well, that's a great answer, Mike. But I would just like to add that uh, f- for me, what attracts me to the smart city community is exactly about solving problems. And the problems can be big, big problems or actually small problems. All of these solutions, however, provide a more livable, a more enjoyable, a more accessible and a safer environment. For example, one aspect of, of a smart city might be the trend mobility or transportation. So a big aspect of the transportation situation could be signals on transit trains and streets. Big, big problem that has to be coordinated with many systems that are interoperable. But could also solve small problems like situations that occur at crosswalks and sensors installed at crosswalks that identify which crosswalks have more accidents than others, and therefore, which ones should be fixed and in what order. So to sum up, just big problems and small problems in a city that can be fixed through smart cities movement, through technology, just make everything better. Mm, I like that, looking at, you know, solving some of those big problems, and then what's the ripple effect of that, or, you know, even the other way around. So you can look at these smaller problems, and then looking at the solution. 
um, which might be a really big deal, actually solving some of these really, you know, wicked problems as we call them. And then that multiplier effect of what smart cities and smart communities can bring. Yes. Well, we're big believers, yeah, in grassroots, bottom-up, you know, solving of problems. So, for instance, when people see problems solved at the neighborhood level, as Cornelia said, at the, you know, block by block, when they see their intersections become safer and their streets become safer through things like complete streets, where you have one part of the street for cars, one part of the street for bicycles, one part of the street for walkers, for pedestrians, when they see how easy it is to fix some of these problems, and to perhaps drive uh, traffic fatalities down to zero, then they feel empowered and then they act. And from there, we see a straight line from the neighborhood initiatives that Cornelia was mentioning right up to global sustainability, you know, fighting against global warming or mitigating global warming. All the things, all the, the large global problems that people talk about really need to start at the community level. And once people feel empowered again, then they say, okay, wow, I solved this problem in my neighborhood. We can work this at the regional level, the national level, and the global level. That's our belief. Yeah, I think that smart cities empowers people. And through participating in various town halls or other civic actions, they find their citizen voice. So the smart city community includes human factors. It It really includes people And it helps people become better citizens. It helps people become involved, engaged, and active in their own community and their community governments. So it's it's problem solving by by the residents and by the citizens who will be impacted by the creative solution of these problems. Mm. The next question is, what is a smart city or a smart community to you? I think we've already kind of started down that track. So maybe Cornelia, do you want to add on to what you were just saying about what a smart city or a smart community is? So again, it's a community, an inclusive and diverse community. In fact, an ecosystem that includes multiple different players, agencies, entities, governments, private enterprises, citizenry of all levels and types, all collaborating to make a better world. So it's the idea is that it enables interactions between citizens and their governments to with the purpose of improving the world, improving urban life. Yeah, we're big fans of Jane Jacobs, who was the, uh, the famous, you know, kind of grassroots urbanist. And she was the author of The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And she took on one of the uh, one of the scariest kind of anti-smart city people, uh, Robert Moses, back in the 1960s and 70s. And from her, from her books and her movement, we really learned the importance of community activism, starting with real people. And as Cornelia said, that the smart city, smart community movement can help people become better citizens. And we're not saying that in some weird patronizing way, because being a good citizen is really important. You know, it's not something trivial. It's something that's good for for your your neighborhood, your town, your city, your state, your region, your country, and it's good for the world. We everybody needs to participate and have their voice in in the mix. And so, um, so it is to us. We see this as the beginnings of a new form of social democracy that works and where people are engaged and involved and uh, and speak up. Yeah, and we we're fortunate enough to have the democracy. So let's use it. Let's get involved and let's let's be active. Absolutely, we do have. Uh, we are um, in in our book. We talk about the uh, about six facets of smart city, 
the smart city. So, and I'll just kind of zip through them quickly. So a smart city to us has got six parts. There's a smart economy, there's smart government, there's smart environment, smart living, smart people, and smart mobility. All six of those, imagine them, again, economy, government, environment, living, people, and mobility. They all have to work together. And you know, so imagine them as a wheel just spinning around, all interconnected. This is truly a, uh, you know, a modern system of systems approach where you can't really change one aspect without changing another. There are unintended consequences that you have to deal with, but that's cool because we understand now that in complex systems, there are always unintended consequences. And that's one of the things that held cities back for a long time is the government wouldn't move until they were absolutely 100 million percent certain that something would work. And as a result, they would plan everything to death. What do they call it? The paralysis by analysis. And that led us down some really, really uh, dark paths. And hopefully we're, uh, we're heading back into the sunshine. Mm, excellent. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, all of those system, all of those areas that Mike just mentioned are interconnected. So they all use information and communication technologies. They all rely on sensors. They all rely on open source platforms, on high volume data collection and analytics. And when they all work together, it's what's called a system of systems. So they are organized to meet current needs as well as future needs. So there's a, a present value and a future value as well. Right, right. And if I can build on, on what Cornelia just said so eloquently, it, of course, immediately raises the question, well, can you do this without collecting data? And the answer is no. Data collection and data analysis and data science and artificial intelligence, they're all part of the mix. So there again, as citizens, we need to set the bar and we need to say, okay, this is appropriate. Collecting this data is appropriate. Collecting that data, maybe not appropriate. Analyzing this data is okay, but maybe analyzing that kind of data is not okay. But we can't allow the government or industry to tell us how they're going to use our data. That's something that should be coming from us. We should recover our, you know, our ownership of our of the data that we produce. We need to, that's that's going to be the next big social movement. <laughs> I'm predicting it now. You heard it here first. No, I'm sure you've heard it before. But data data is labor, and we need to start holding people accountable when they take our data and when they use it. And you know who I'm talking about, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, I agree. I think it's so important that we as citizens, as smart citizens, take control of our data. And that actually starts with understanding what data we currently are already sharing, what we would be willing to share, how much that should cost or what benefits we get out of that as well. And then what are the services that it can enable if we are able to share that data? Anyway, that's very important. And I think let's go on to the next question, which I think we've, we've already dived into so much already, but what specific ac aspects of like smart city is important to both of you? Uh, Mike, you first. Uh, let's see, definitely the data collection aspect of it and the data analytics, uh, because you can't optimize any of these services unless you're collecting data and unless you're analyzing it in real time. And then you also have to make decisions as to what data is sent to databases for analysis in the future, when I say the future, like five minutes from now, and then what data is analyzed on the edge. We're in a mesh network 
within milliseconds of it being generated. And so what really interests me is uh, when 5G rolls out and latency theoretically drops to practically zero, then we're going to need to decide, okay, you know, do we have the bandwidth to have uh, self-driving buses? Do we have the bandwidth to have self-driving uh, mini cars? You know, I, I'm not a big fan of self-driving automobiles, you know, four passenger automobiles, but we could easily have fleet cities, could easily have fleets of self-driving mini buses or minivans. Uh, and that would really, like, not only would it be great for the environment, it would also, and it would be, you know, wonderful for traffic. It would just be a really, really good thing. And that is one of the things that can happen through better data collection, better networks, and better understanding of how data is analyzed and, uh, and fed back into the system. That opens the door for transportation. I was going to say transportation, but I didn't want to steal that one. Sure. Uh, Cornelia, do you want to add to that? Well, you know, yes. I mean, I, I think that the data collection and data triage and fallen, being in agreement with how data is used is extremely important. That's fundamental. But across the smart city ecosystem, I think the biggest industry and the biggest thing that touches everyone, that touches most people, is transportation. So the transportation network, buses, trains, and paratransit, especially that pedestrians take every day, is really fascinating and making progress along those lines because it touches everybody's lives. It's very complex. They're interrelated. And they're also very expensive, and they're quite political. So it's important there to participate in any votes, town halls, or election consequences and possibilities that people might have to influence anything involving transportation, because it, it's so vital to our daily life. It really is. And, uh, you know, of course, when we were kids, we thought by now we would all have uh, jetpacks and we'd be flying around uh you know, it's a anti-gravity belts and things like that. But uh, but we're still in cars and we're still in buses and still in subways. And getting those things right turns out to be really, really important and really, really difficult. And as Cornelia said, people need to be involved because invariably politics enters into these decisions. And that means and politics to us means discussion, you know, uh, sometimes heated discussion and sometimes, you know, discussion that's confrontational in nature. But that's just the way the way humans operate, and we need to not be afraid of those kinds of conversations and those kind of discussions. And we need to rem- remember how to be civic, civil people, because we can get it done. We need to just show up at the meetings. And again, as a newspaper reporter, I know that democracy functioned best when people would show up in the middle of the night and attend public meetings. And that's the way it works. And it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And, and hopefully smart cities and smart communities will encourage that kind of citizen engagement and citizen participation. Mm. I think with transport, obviously, it's a, a love of mine. And I use the word mobility so we can incorporate that more holistic kind of view of. And I think touching on your point with engagement, I hope that we don't have to show up at town hall to have our voices heard. But I think it's definitely an important part. And then, but what does town hall look like in the future, in the digital sense, in the virtual mm-hmm. sense? Great, great, great point. Yeah. Cornelia, can you uh, talk about uh, Barcelona's Decidem? Well, Barcelona has a very interesting model called Decidem. And it is an online democratic platform where people can vote online about projects, community projects sponsored by the government, paid for, funded by the government that will impact their 
community. So they have a choice and people's votes will impact how those projects are prioritized, which ones will get priority funding ahead of others. It's very, very important. You can see which ones have been put up and which ones are voted on. And it's a very, very, uh, really democracy in action. It's a great way of uh, looking to the way things might be done elsewhere as well in the future. Yeah, when we found out about it, we were just so um, so impressed and uh, and astounded and, and happy to find that Barcelona was moving ahead uh, in this area of you know using technology to engage citizens in the civic decision making processes. And it's just um, again because we we thought you know uh, we thought we were going to be writing a book about technology. And it turned out that was really kind of like the least interesting part of it. The most interesting part was how citizens would become engaged. And, uh, you know, we heard some really good, uh, I wouldn't say screaming matches, but, uh, you know, people raised their voices and said, no, it's not about the technology. It's about engagement. It's about the citizens. Mm. Yes. And we're happy to hear that. Yes. Okay. How do you think the U.S. is currently embracing this concept? I want to hear some positives and I want to hear some negatives. Well, it's, I th- I'd say it's very scattered. So I don't, I, that's kind of a middle of the road answer. There are some places where it's a, it's a very well known, co- the smart city concept is very well known. And some city or national government agencies are very active. And some cities where it's, where they have, where they can point with great pride to some successes. For example, Portland, Oregon has a lot of bicycling. They've kind of taken back the city from cars and made it more of a pedestrian and bicycle riding town. And other cities where the the concept is relatively new. So it's kind of all over the place. What do you say, Mike? The um, Cary, North Carolina, uh, which happens to be the home of a very large uh, statistical software company, has made some really interesting strides in terms of measuring water usage. And so if all of a sudden your water usage spikes, they'll send someone over and say, maybe you've got a leak. And things like that kind of, uh, that, that's one of these situations where someone might say, well, what's the town, why is the town paying attention to my water usage? But, you know, one or two people say that, but most of the people in Cary say, thank goodness the town is paying attention to my water usage because now they, you know, they're telling me that I've got a leak in my, in my water system. And it also makes, keeps their taxes low. Because when they get a handle on their water usage, they can plan their you know, renovations at their water treatment plants much more effectively. Because as you know, most of the uh, you know in the past, most civic uh, capital expenditures are mostly guesswork, and the guesswork can be pretty horrible because the cities and towns know that well, we're just going to put up a bond issue, and people will pay for it over the next thirty years, and that's like interesting, and that you know, but that makes people scream because, you know, why should I have to pay for something over 30 years? Or let me put it this way, um, why should my grandchildren have to pay for something that I'm, you know, that I'm doing? It's kind of like this perennial game of kicking the can down the road. So there are there are plenty of cities and communities in the U.S. that are kind of, uh, that are beginning this. My town, Fairfield, Connecticut, uh, we have solar panels. So if we uh, have electric cars, we can just, I can go over to the rec center, and I can plug my car into a solar grid. And theoretically, it's free, it's uh, saving the planet, and it's all good. I would expect that to happen in more places. So that's, uh, that's good. 
Yeah, another city that let's say more a little bit more sophisticated on their smart city journey, believe it or not, is Columbus, Ohio. And they did a very formal data collection business case analysis and presented it to the Department of Transportation and won a big challenge. Uh, a lot of different cities participated in the challenge. There were seven finalists in all. Columbus, Ohio won because they made the best case. And the case was about extending their public transportation network south from Columbus, Ohio downtown into an area of the city that was poorly served by transportation, but where there was very low employment and where the infant mortality rate and illness rate was very high. So they argued that extending the transportation network down into those communities would give them access to, first of all, employment, and secondly, much better health care. They made such a great case. They were so creative with their approach to the problem. It consisted of not only a build-out of the network, but apps and schedules and bike-sharing routes and all kinds of uh, trimmings. And they were very, very thorough in their entire approach, very, very enthusiastic. And in fact, they not only did they win, but all of their ideas were shared with the other finalists who found out that through the process that they had similar problems to what Columbus had. So the whole exercise spread the wealth of good ideas all around, and, and it was a very successful project. They received a lot of money from the government and from other philanthropy organizations. So it was, it was great. I love that. Yeah, that. That was a great uh, Columbus uh, case is just a, is a wonderful example. And it shows how all of these different parts of the city and the community are interrelated. Because as Cornelia said, by improving the transportation, they improved healthcare outcomes. And by improving access to jobs, they improved educational outcomes and healthcare. And, and of course, that lowered the costs of healthcare for the city because fewer people were going to the emergency rooms. So it all had a, a positive, it was a virtuous Virtuous circle. It's uh, the whole community, the financial aspect, everything, everybody was better afterwards. It was great. So Amazon, you know, Amazon had a, a contest basically to say, who's the smartest city that we can come to? And we're going to put our headquarters there. And they called it the HQ2 competition. And a whole bunch of cities uh, tried out and, you know, tried to impress uh Jeff Bezos, that they had a great city. And it came down to basically, so Amazon decided that they were going to have two headquarters, one in New York City and the other in uh, Virginia. I'm sorry, uh, can you remind me? Crystal City, Virginia. Yes. And so at any rate, the, the problem in New York City was that the deal had been kind of done between the governor, the mayor, and Amazon without involving local people. And local people you know, because they, uh, particularly in New York, uh, were peeved, angry, irritated, you know, pissed off by the fact that they hadn't been consulted. And they were so angry that they raised such a ruckus that Amazon said, you know, forget it, we're not going to come to New York City at all. Now, some people rejoiced and said, oh, this is great. We have slain the dragon and now, you know, all will be good forever. But the rest of us were saying this should have been handled in a smart way. And a smart city, you know, going back to this idea that a smart city has smart politics, smart government and smart citizens, all three of those parts would have worked together and they would have gone to Amazon much, much earlier and said, here, let's talk about how this is really going to work. 
Like if you come in and if we give you tax breaks, how are you going to help us fix up the transportation problems in Queens? That's the borough that this was going to go into. How are you going to help us rebuild the schools? How are you going to help us, you know, improve the networks, the communication networks or the infrastructure? And it could have been a back and forth. Instead, it was a, a fiasco. It was a top-down situation. It wasn't a collaborative partnership between, I I like to use the image of a three-legged stool. The smart city works best when there are three legs to the stool. In other words, a technology company, i.e. Amazon in this case, the local government, which would be the city and state of New York, and the third leg of the stool, which was missing in this case that Mike is talking about, was the citizen participation. Because the citizens stood to gain quite a lot, but because they weren't involved from the get-go, a small group of very, very vocal activists took over and chased Amazon away, and the whole deal collapsed. So it was really an unfortunate thing, in my opinion, anyway. Lost a lot of jobs, lost a lot of business, and lost the opportunity to really create a big impact on the transportation network that the 25,000 jobs the people, employees, would eventually be using. Instead, we got nothing. Yeah, you said that really well, and thank you for... uh, Exactly, because New York should have been a role model for other smart communities, and instead we were whatever the opposite of a role model is. So it was a a lost opportunity on many levels. And uh, But hopefully, you know, never say never. uh, You know, in in the real world, uh, there are no endings, happy or unhappy. You know, hopefully some people will come back to the table and hopefully they'll learn from this experience. And other cities will learn from the Amazon uh, New York experience, which is involve the people from the get-go. As Cornelia said, don't, you know, you, you can't do things in the dark. This is, we're, we're way, way beyond the days of smoke-filled rooms where deals are cut in, you know, in a basement somewhere with a bunch of fat old guys smoking cigars. You know, hopefully we're past that. Transparency. I mean, I like the three like uh, scenario or example because if you don't have that community aspect, it doesn't matter who the tech provider is or, or whoever it is. If it's a, it might not be an Amazon, but it might be a you know another company or you know a social enterprise or whatever it is. But if you don't have that third leg of the community, then this the stool is always going to fall over. So I think that transparency, you know, whoever the parties are, but having that open, honest discussion. And I guess transparency is so key. And I like, glad that you said it, Mike, and not me, but cutting deals in a basement with, you know, the top level and shaking hands and going, trust us, we know what we're doing, just won't work anymore. And it's not to say that we don't need those high levels and that power that to make those decisions. Um, that's not it at all, but actually involving the community. And then I think for me, it's involving the community and then the professional community as well. So we've got citizens and then we've got the people that have studied this stuff, gone to uni, or not necessarily gone to uni, but studied this stuff and bring that professional aspect so then they can have open conversations with the community as well. Because I think some people think, oh, well, if we involve community, they don't know why we're doing things and, you know, what the economy and all this kind of stuff. But I think that's so not true because, one, the community is much smarter than a lot of people give, you know, as a collective, give um, them credit for. And then also it doesn't mean that, 
just because the community says, oh, we want, for an example in, in Australia, you know, we want a community, a pool in, in this street because it will benefit, you know, the loudest voices. But actually taking that information and then it's about aggregating that, you know, getting more information and putting that together, putting to professionals. And it's really just about involving people and empowering people to make sure that they know that they have a choice and that democracy. So I think, yeah, it's a good example of what not to do. And then learning from that, what will we do next time? Or what what will the government and what will those three legs of that stool do next time? It's very well said, Zoe. And I think that it's important to remember that the loudest voice is not always the smartest voice. So you have to be careful not to be influenced just by somebody who makes a lot of noise, by somebody who makes the most sense. That's it for part one of this great conversation with Cornelia Levy-Bencherton and Mike Barlow. Stay tuned for part two of this interview where Cornelia, Mike and Zoe have a great discussion about the multi-generational diversity in the workforce and in our cities, the opportunities and challenges that poses to us, and how us all being more engaged and empowered citizens can really make the world a better place for everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community or find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter at smartcompod. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears, so thank you in advance. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.